Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, in an edition of The Spectator last year, Damien Thompson compared the census figures from 2001 with the 2011 census and points out that, quote, the number of Christians born in Britain fell by 5.3 million, about 10,000 a week. He concluded at that rate of decline by the year 2067, Christians in this land will become statistically invisible. He is, in this article, forecasting the end of the church in this land, saying that in 50 years' time, there will be no church to speak of in Britain. Now, look, the the death of the church has been predicted so many times down through the years that it's no longer news, really. But however we look at it and whatever figures we use, there is no question that the church in this land is in numerical decline. And I think it's in spiritual decline too. Britain is becoming increasingly godless and church attendance is reflecting that. And what is more, the immorality of the nation is seeping into the church like water rushing into a sinking ship. Now, the book of Ezra that we've been looking at over these last few weeks is about repairing that hole. And more than that, it's about positively reforming God's people, making us what we should be. Not just keeping the ship afloat, but making it positively sail again. Now, this week in chapter four, we come face to face with one big reason why any attempt to rebuild often comes to nothing. And it is this. Whenever we're about the work of building the church, we will face opposition. The whole chapter is about that one thing. And anyone who's ever been involved in gospel ministry will know that opposition comes and how discouraging it can be. Uh, Last week, we left the people of Judah in Jerusalem, having rebuilt the altar and having laid the foundations of the temple. It had taken them, do you remember, months to get that far. And no sooner had they made this progress in the building work than opposition came. Chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families. Now, before we read on, we must see that verse 1 states very clearly that the people who turned up in verses 1 to 5 are enemies of God's people. It is crucial that we see that because their words in verse 2 really don't seem to be words of the enemy. Let me read on verse 2. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, Let's help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshadaron, king of Assyria, who brought us here. We want to build the temple with you. We want to help you. We too are followers of your God. These people don't look like enemies at all. They seem to speak as friends. They seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Out for the same cause. They claim to be following the same God. And that makes the response from Judah's leaders a a real surprise. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. 
Isn't that a surprising response? So here's the question as I read through this. Why did the leaders of Judah see these people as enemies? What was it about them that made the leaders of Judah so categorically reject any help that they offered? The answer is tucked away back in verse 2. Here, who are, pe- here are people who say they follow the same God, but look at verse 2. We have been sacrificing to your God since the time of Ashadaron, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, history, this is the most, you've got to keep your mind in gear at this moment. It's not complicated, but don't drop off now. History tells us that Ashadaron reigned from 681 to 669 BC. And those dates tell us that these people have been sacrificing to God since Ashadaron's reign, then they have not been sacrificing at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. They have been sacrificing somewhere else. And we know that because the temple in Jerusalem has been in tatters. The altar has only just been rebuilt. And the fact that they have been sacrificing somewhere else other than the temple in Jerusalem really matters. Because the Lord made it very clear that there is one place and one place only where sacrifice for sin could be made. And that is at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So in sacrificing somewhere else, these people had been very significantly disobeying the Lord. There was only one designated place, designated by the Lord, where we human beings can meet God through the sacrifice of sin, through the sacrifice for sin. But these people, these enemies, think they can come to God via another route. They think there's another way to God, another way of sacrificing somewhere else other than the place that God has given. Now fast forward hundreds of years to Jesus Christ and we'll see very clearly why this is such an important issue. Jesus is the one person And his cross is the one place where we can go to be put right with God. He is the sacrifice for sin. Jesus himself said it very clearly. You'll know these words, many of you, very well. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to be put right with God. We cannot know God except through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And if we think there is another way then we are making at least two mistakes. First, we are arrogantly saying that we know better than God. Okay, Lord, I know you've said there's only one way to you, but I think I know there's another way. I think I know better than you, Lord. That's what we're saying. How arrogant is that? And then secondly, and perhaps most worrying of all, as we say that, we are dismissing the sacrifice that God himself gave in Christ. By trying to get to God through another route, any other route, we are saying that Jesus' death wasn't necessary. No, we found another way to God. Do you see how offensive it is to say that? And do you see how saying that makes you an enemy of God and of his people? But that is precisely what people, many people say today. People of other faiths say, well, we all follow the same God, let's work together. Some from other faiths say, yes, we believe that Jesus is a God, but he's just one of many deities. And so when you listen to these people, they don't seem to be rejecting Jesus. They just think it's possible to bypass him. 
and to come to God through some other route. They say, you come to God through Jesus, we come to God another way, but we all come to the same God eventually, so let's work together. And most desperately of all, there are people who call themselves Christians who talk like this. Just this week, as I was studying Ezra chapter 4, into my inbox popped an email explaining that a regular Buddhist meeting is being hosted by a member of staff at York Minster. And this Buddhist meeting, which has been running regularly for the past two years, is held in property either owned by the Minster or for which the Minster has primary responsibility. Last year, the Reverend Giles Goddard made national news headlines by holding a Muslim prayer service. At one point, he asked the congregation at St John's Waterloo, a Church of England church, he asked the congregation at St John's Waterloo to praise, quote, the God that we love, Allah. End of quote. Desperately, these are not just two extreme examples I needed to search the internet to find. Multi-faith worship services have been held in our cathedrals. And people in positions of leadership in churches up and down the land don't believe in the uniqueness of Christ as the only way to God. Now please see how offensive this is. God has made it very clear that there is one way to meet him and one way only. And that one way is through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. And for a moment, think how much it cost the father and the son for the son to go to the cross. Look at the cross and see the extraordinary lengths Jesus was prepared to go to. The extraordinary lengths the father was prepared to go to, to allow his son to go there in order to bring us back to God. Look at the cross and see the pain and the suffering, not just the physical pain and the suffering, but the separation that the son was prepared to experience from the Father. The Son and the Father who had been in perfect relationship with one another for all eternity, never a crossword between them, ready to be separated through the wrath of God being poured out upon the Son so that the Father had to turn his face away. And so Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And when you look at the cross and understand what was going on there, then you see how offensive it is to say that it wasn't necessary because there are other ways to God. So at a glance, the words in verse 3 look harsh. They are not in the modern spirit of ecumenism and interfaith worship or tolerance or acceptance. They look harsh. They are, in fact, wonderfully faithful to the one true God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, out of his extraordinary love for us, has given us a way to know him and to be brought back into relationship with him. And we must not be so arrogant as to suggest that we know better and can bypass the one place of sacrifice that God has provided. And that is why Zerubbabel, Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the families were absolutely right to say to these people in verse 3, you have no part with us in building the temple of our God, for you have ignored the one place that God said you can go to 
for sacrifice for sin and have decided to choose your own route. And just as Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the family said, we cannot have any part in building with you, so that is what we must say too. To anyone who does not hold unswervingly to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, we cannot partner in gospel ministry with people like that. Because ultimately, if we do, we won't be building God's church. We'll be building something else. So we must have nothing to do with interfaith worship. And this passage, I believe, says we must treat anyone who does... Anyone who does tolerate interfaith worship, we must treat them as enemies of God, verse 1. No matter what they call themselves. And even if they have had a high position bestowed upon them by ecclesiastical hierarchy, they are not Christians and we must not work with them. And please, this is not just about interfaith worship services. Here are... Here in verse 2 are people who say that they seek the same God. People who say they want to be about building the temple. In our language here are people who call themselves Christians and who want to work with us in building the church. But they don't hold to the uniqueness of Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. Would you please be sure in your prayers to pray for and support those who represent us here at Darsison and Deanery level? For there is huge pressure for us to work with others in the Church of England who do not hold firmly to the uniqueness of Christ and the cross. A while back I attended a conference for the clergy of this diocese. I sat down to lunch with a number of people that I didn't know especially well, one or two that I'd never met before. One was an ordained person in this diocese. The person was delightful. As we chatted over lunch, this person said that they had a big Muslim population in their parish I asked them how they were trying to take the gospel to those Muslims and I asked them about the particular challenges for Muslims to become Christians. And in an open conversation with others listening in, this person replied, oh, I wouldn't dream of trying to get Muslims to convert to Christianity. No, I don't believe they need to come to Jesus. After all, we all believe in the same God. Again, please don't think I've had to hunt around for a comment like that just to spice up the sermon. Another licensed church worker in the diocese has told me that he has family of a different faith, but he isn't seeking to convert them to Christ because, as he put it, quote, while following Jesus is the best way to live life, I don't think that Jesus is the only way to God. These people say they are Christians. But do you hear the logic they are denying that the cross of the Lord Jesus is necessary. They are an offence to God and to the gospel. And in the diocese and in the deanery, we are being encouraged to work with people like this in gospel ministry. Verse 3 says we cannot. And so quite rightly, the leaders of Judah refused to work with these people. And as a result, verse 4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now again, I've seen exactly this. 
People seem delightful when they suggest we might work together in gospel ministry, but as soon as we refuse to do so because they don't hold unswervingly to the gospel, they turn nasty. Verse four, discouraging the gospel work we're about. And then trying to put the wind up as verse four, making us fearful. And then verse five, getting us to join them in, uh, getting others to join them in, in opposition against us. I've experienced all of this. First discouragement, rather than being encouraged to build the church, obstacles are putting our way to frustrate us when it comes to all sorts of things like church planting or training gospel leaders. Then fear comes. I've sat in the office of a senior cleric with church wardens beside me who can vouch for me on this when I was threatened with legal action for supporting another Christian, other Christian brothers and sisters who were building the church. Discouragement and fear and then getting others, frankly, to gang up against us. So on a number of occasions, people have sidled up to me at church meetings, at wider church meetings. They've lowered their voice and they've told me how many people don't like what we're about. When we refuse to compromise on the uniqueness of Christ in his cross, the very people who say they are with us declare their hand by working against us. And we can expect this opposition to be relentless when we are about gospel ministry. See, in verses four and five, for those of you who like um, grammar, those of you who are revising for your English grammar, here's a bit of grammar for you. In verses four and five, there are three participles indicating continuing action. Somebody else told me that because I'm rubbish at grammar. There's no way I'd have known that. So this could have been translated, verse four, they kept on discouraging the people and they kept on frightening them. And verse five, they kept on hiring counsellors to work against them. But you don't have to be good at grammar to know that because... The rest of the chapter tells us that this opposition will be relentless. End of verse 5, opposition came during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia, for more than eight years. And then it continued further. Verses 6 to 23 in this chapter are a glimpse into the future, into the history of the building work. So what we've got in verses 6 to 23 is kind of the future uh, of the whole building of the rebuilding of the temple brought forward a little bit, all put into this one chapter. To understand the chapter, put a bracket around verse 6 and then close the bracket at verse 23. This is something that was going to happen that they're now telling us happened so that we know opposition comes right the way through the building work. And look what it says, verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes. Opposition continued through a complaint being lodged. And then verse 7, and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Methradath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. And then the rest of the chapter, down to verse 23, is a record of that letter of the correspondence to and from king artaxerxes all of this happens a long time later but it's basically saying verses 6 to 23 recording all these events to come the writer of this book inserts it here to say whenever you stand for the truth and get on with the building work of god you will be opposed cyrus darius xerxes artaxerxes four kings And every time there is opposition while they are trying to rebuild the temple. 
And as we read the particular details of the correspondence in verses 8 to 23, we learn three things as we come to a close about the nature of opposition. Firstly, people who hate each other will unite in their opposition against God's people. Look at the people who added their signature to the letter to King Artaxerxes. They're listed in verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to read them out because I can't. The names are too difficult. They include people from many different nations, including those who live in Samaria. The point is, these people didn't see eye to eye on anything, really. Certainly on nothing religious. But they united in their opposition to God's people. That shouldn't surprise us. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, the Herodians, those who followed Herod, King Herod, who was um, a Gentile, they hated each other. But that hatred was overcome in their bigger hatred of Jesus. They united against each other. That will happen to us. Second, as we read this correspondence to our tax Xerxes, note the inflammatory and exaggerated language that is used against God's people. The letter begins, verse 12, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Expect people to say all sorts of things that simply aren't true when we're getting on with gospel work. Expect them to exaggerate and inflame the situation. And third, see how they spread vicious rumours, verse 13. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. There's no substance in that comment. They're just trying to get the king worried, spreading rumours. Again, it's happened to me. People have started rumours that I'm going to lead Christchurch forward out of the Church of England. I don't know where that came from because I've never said it. News to me. In this letter, we see enemies united in, uniting in their hatred against God's work, using inflammatory and exaggerated language, spreading vicious rumours. It's the opposition. I mean, it all comes from the opposition, from Satan himself. He is the father of lies. He is the father of inflammatory, exaggerated, vicious rumours. We get a hint that he's behind all this in verse 6, because the word accusation there is the word sitna, closely related to Satan, the accuser. He's the source of all opposition against gospel work. And be sure he will do everything to stop the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And you know, at times it looks as if he's been successful. See, having received this scurrilous letter in verses 18 to 22, we read Artaxerxes' reply. I'll let you read it at home in your own time. But basically in verses 18 to 22, he ordered that the work on the temple be halted while he looked into the accusations of the first letter that was sent to him. And then we read verse 23. So as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them to, to by force to stop. Now, as I've explained, verses 6 to 23 give us a glimpse of something that happens in the future, uh, many years later. But we see exactly the same following the opposition in verses 1 to 5 during the reigns of Cyrus. 
And so the chapter concludes, verse 24, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. From the reign of Cyrus to the reign of Darius spanned eight years. You know where we've got to so far in this book if you've been here these last few few weeks? Some people were moved by God in their hearts to go and rebuild the temple. They made that huge journey. Do you remember um, tens of thousands of them making that journey from Babylon to Jerusalem? Finally, they got there. Then they finally get around to start rebuilding. They rebuild the altar. Then they put the foundations down. It's months later. This has taken ages to get this far. And then it comes to a crashing halt because opposition comes. And for eight years, nothing happens. And all they've got are some foundations and an altar. And it would have looked as if the opposition had won. And as we try to build the church in this land, at times we'll feel as if we're fighting a losing battle. We'll be discouraged. People will put the frighteners on us. We'll have people ganging up against us. And for a season, it will feel as if we're getting nowhere. It might seem like that now as the church in this land is in decline. And so we need to remember what we've seen. We need to pray that the Lord would move the hearts of his people and move in the hearts of unbelievers as well. Do you remember chapter one? So that he starts the work again. We need to pray. It's why you need to come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday for the reformation of the church in Britain. And as we do that, then we need to be about building the church numerically and spiritually. We need to get on with it, even though opposition comes. And we need to be sure that we will not compromise on the uniqueness of Christ and his cross. Because that is the only way that God has given through which men and women can come to know him. And if you think that we're getting nowhere, then come back next week. And see how God turns all of this around for his glory and the good of his people. Let's pray together. Father, once again, I'm, uh, well, I'm surprised, but I shouldn't be. The relevance of your word This little book of Ezra, written hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus, thousands of years before us, and as relevant today as it ever was. Thank you for showing us what we're up against. Thank you for helping us to have a clarity about who we can and can't work with. And help us to have the courage to stand firm with you even though the opposition when we do that will be fierce we pray we'd see the bigger truth who you are the way you have given for us to come to know you and that if we don't remain faithful we're not building the church anyway And we would pray that you would do that work that we saw in chapter one of stirring up hearts of your people and of persuading and changing the hearts even of unbelievers. 
to smooth the way for us to carry on building that the church in this land might not continue in decline but might be reformed, rebuilt, transformed. And all this we pray for your praise and glory. Amen.